folks, come on in, have a seat. Thanks, Drew, for leading us. Good evening, everybody. As you're getting settled in, uh, and as we're starting a little bit late, let me apologize for the food showing up late. It was out of the control of uh, our folks that ordered it. They just kind of showed up late. So thanks for your patience for that. And if you got cheated out of some chicken and uh, you want to be reimbursed, I'm sure we can work that out. But thank you guys for your patience. Or you can just double up next week. I don't know. what Do, do with however the Lord leads you. All right. Um, <clears throat> our topic tonight is politics. How should a Christian posture themselves towards politics? How should Christians vote? Not who should they vote for. I'm not going to answer that question tonight. But how should Christians vote? In other words, what principles should we be guided by as we think about exercising our stewardship as citizens of this great country where we have this freedom? So let's get right to it. Let me pray, and then we're going to read a lot of scripture. We're going to be kind of drinking from a fire hose tonight. We're going to have some lists on the screen to help us. The first two will move more quickly, and then we'll settle down into uh, some more, uh, 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 just more nuanced principles that I want us to think about tonight. So first, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. We do thank you for food, even even that might show up a little late. What a blessing it is to, to be provided for by you, by your good hand. And as we open up this discussion about politics, I'm, I'm just reminded, Lord, that we have so many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who have, have nowhere near the freedom we do to do the very thing that we're going to do tonight. And we're able to do this without fear, uh, without a sense of persecution or danger. And so, Lord, we thank you for that stewardship, that freedom that you've given us. Lord, first, I pray that you'd make us better citizens of your kingdom as a result of our time tonight. And then secondly, better citizens of this temporary kingdom. Be glorified as your people meet and help us grow in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have thought about this topic before on several occasions. I I, I did a midweek teaching on politics a couple years ago, and then I can remember at least two Sunday morning sermons as we were working through books of the Bible, in particular Mark chapter 12, where Jesus talks about the relationship of the Christian to the state. And then in Romans chapter 13, most recently, when we looked at Paul's instructions to the church. I'm sure that you uh, remember those sermons very well. But in case you don't, um, let me just read those scriptures for you again. And I'm going to briefly, briefly summarize the theological foundations of what I think Jesus and Paul are saying together Uh, in the scripture. So let me read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, one of the more well-known passages where Jesus gives us instruction in this area of how the Christian is to relate to the state. Verse 13, it says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees, meaning Jesus, they sent to him Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them in verse 17, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So just to set the scene, and then we're going to read Romans 13, and we're going to piece Mark 12 and Romans 13 together and, and setting some foundational truths. Just to set the scene, take note that Jesus is bringing together rivals against each other and putting them on the same team. So the Herodians were people that were loyal to Herod, who was the leader installed by Rome. And the Pharisees were the Jewish zealots who would have hated Roman rule. And so it would be like, it would be like Sean Hannity and Rachel Maydow coming together on the same team to ask Jesus this question. That's, that's what's going on here in Mark chapter 12. And Jesus tells them two things, render to Caesar what are his and render to God what is his. Okay, now to Romans 13, probably the most comprehensive passage in the Bible on the relationship, the authority of the state. Paul teaches, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And remember the context. Paul is writing in the context of the Roman government, the pagan, increasingly hostile to Christianity, Roman government, unbelieving, pagan, fallen Roman government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, singular meaning, for he meaning the government, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the picture is of the fallen civil government being God's avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one, meaning a Christian, must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so piecing together what Jesus has said in Mark 12 and what Paul is saying here in Romans 13, there are certainly other verses that we can read, but for the sake of time, let's use those as foundational text. And there are four foundational truths that flow from these passages that we just read, and I want to go through them very briefly and quickly. One, God has instituted all government, every government, all governments, whether good or bad, believing, unbelieving, God has instituted all governments, all authority, and gives each a limited authority. Two, Christians should submit to the righteous authority of their government, even though that government is fallen and unbelieving. So Christians should submit to the righteous authority of their government. Even when they may disagree with that government about what is the right thing, Christians should submit to that government. Which leads us to foundational truth number three. That Christians should disobey the government when obeying that government means disobeying God. So there's lots of things that we may disagree with our government about, 
But those aren't necessarily things that would rise to the level of us then disobeying God if we were to carry out that government regulation or rule. But when something does put us in direct opposition to something God has clearly commanded his people, then we are to practice civil disobedience and to disobey the government. There are examples of this in the scripture. I think of the Hebrew midwives in in Exodus that disobeyed the command to kill the infant uh, Hebrew children. I think of uh, Jesus at the end of the Gospels commanding his followers to preach the Gospel. And then early on in Acts, we see the Sanhedrin arrest some of the early apostles and tell them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But then later on, Peter and John answer and they say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And later Peter says in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. We see in Daniel in the Old Testament a a, a beautiful picture of disobedience, of, of, of an order that would make them disobey God. We see Daniel refusing Um, to bow down to the king and being thrown into the lion's den. We see the three Hebrew young boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow down and worship the golden statue and um, and suffering the consequences of, 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 of the wrath of the pagan emperor. So Christians should disobey the government when obeying the government means disobeying God. Which leads us to our fourth and final foundational truth, It's that God has ultimate and supreme authority over all nations, all governments, and all individuals. I I hope that's a given. I hope we all understand that just as a biblical worldview. And that's that's what Jesus is getting at when I think he picks up this coin and he says, look at this coin, whose image is on it? And Caesar's image would have been on the coin. And Jesus is actually making a theological point there. He's saying that, yes, Caesar's image is on this coin, so there's a kind of limited authority that Caesar has, but the image of God is imprinted on every human soul, even fallen humanity. So God is, is, is the author, the sovereign king over all humanity, and certainly over that, it, it, certainly underneath God's authority is this authority of, of temporary Caesars throughout the centuries. Abraham Kuyper a Dutch theologian and prime minister. He was actually a theologian and the prime minister of the country back around the turn of the last century, late 1800s, early 1900s, has this beautiful, famous quote where he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So that applies not just to governments. It applies not just to the White House or to London or to any other capital in the world. It applies to our very lives, to our thoughts, our leisure, our sexuality, our finances, our work, our family, our everything. Christ is king over all things. And in his sovereign plan, God has handed over a temporary, limited authority to the prince of the power of the air and to fallen government and to fallen mankind. And so we see even in Ephesians chapter 2, where we are by nature children of wrath, and we are subject in a sense to the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan, who in a sense is given an authority over this world. But over and above all of that clearly is this biblical picture that God is sovereign over all things. And and even the things that seem to be resisting his authority, he is somehow working together under his mysterious providence and will eventually bring all things 
into submission to Christ, which we see beautifully spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, where, where Paul says there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And even the disobedience of individuals and governments now in some mysterious providential way is being used by God to order all things for the ultimate end of his glory. And that's a biblical worldview which every Christian should rest in. Here's just a helpful illustration. Think of, think of God's things and Caesar's things. There's two ways to look at two spheres, God's things and Caesar's things. The wrong way to look at it is to think of God's things as one sphere here, and then over here is Caesar's things as if they are two spheres that don't connect, or maybe they sort of overlap occasionally. And that's a wrong way of looking at the relationship between God's authority and the authority of the government. Rather, we should look at one big sphere, which is God's things. He's in charge of all things. And within his sphere is this small Caesar sphere. So God is over it all. Caesar, the government, Fallen governments have a kind of authority, but it's a granted authority. And even though they may temporarily disobey God's authority, God in some providential way is still ordering even their disobedience for his glory. And I get that from Romans chapter 8, which says that God works all things together, even the disobedience of wicked despots and, and governments, for the good of his people and for his glory. So those are four foundational truths. Three quick biblical purposes for government. And I get this. Again, this is just kind of by way of review and a little foundation setting. And then we're going to get into some nuances. I got this from this book by Jonathan Lehman, uh, a guy that I am familiar with. He is, he works, he's one of the editors for Nine Marks, which is a ministry that we're very indebted to. Uh, and it's, it, he lives in Washington, D.C., and it's a book called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. And we've ordered some of these. We don't have them yet, but they'll be in the resource room in a couple weeks. Really, really helpful resource to think about politics from a Christian perspective. <clears throat> and from this book, one of the chapters, he gives three biblical pers- purposes for government. So the, the, these three things that I'm about to work through are straight from, from Lehman's thoughts. The biblical purposes for government are to, one, render judgment for the sake of justice. So this is in line with what we just read out of Romans 13, that God has given even fallen government the responsibility of law and order. And think with me here. We don't necessarily think along these lines, but I do believe it's true. Even bad governments, even very bad governments, are better than anarchy. So think about... Just think about Castro's Cuba, and we have a brother in this church who's from Cuba and, and, and left Castro's Cuba and is now a member of our church, and so he would, he would know this, certainly. And I don't say this flippantly because I know, after many conversations with him, the difficulties that he grew up in, but even Castro's Cuba is better than anarchy, it better than the Lord of the Flies, if you've ever read that novel where just chaos reigns. And so the government, even bad ones, do in a sense keep order and render judgment for the sake of at least some justice. Two, the purpose of government is to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing. So in this, the the thought is things like building permits, you know, to, to make sure that there's a general safety in buildings or codes 
you know, disability laws, traffic laws, speed limits, unless you're from Germany, roads, sorry, Michi, we have a German here, military, health care, health codes, just kind of general public safety things that even less than, very less than ideal governments at least do some measure of, even in their fallen state, that do in some way produce, promote a kind of peace, order, and human flourishing. And then thirdly and finally, the purpose of government, and this is most often uh, unbeknownst to that government, but yet God is still working this government for this purpose, is to set the stage for redemption. Lehman says this, a good government sets the stage for God's plan of redemption. It clears the way for the people of God to do their work of calling the nations to God. And so there's a kind of, there's a kind of nation, the people of God within every nation, the church, the church, the people of God within a nation that this nation in a sense through their laws and order is to protect, to pave the way. God has sort of ordered society, this fallen society, so that within the at least semblance of order of fallen society, God's people can operate to ultimately bring, uh, bring people to the true kingdom. I think of things like road networks. You think about Rome and the road networks in Rome that were built that actually sped the advance of the gospel in the first century, or even the interstate system in the United States, which has done wonderful things for the industrialization and the the, uh, the, the economic engine of the United States, sure, it gets stuff from one coast to the other, but in another sense, it speeds the advance of the gospel as well across our nation and across the frontier, and the Lord used the interstate system of the United States, the ingenuity of a fallen government, to actually advance the gospel in our country. So there's a kind of example of how the Lord will use the order to actually fuel his plan, and and, and this almost always happens unbeknownst to the fallen government. So those are the three biblical purposes for government standing alongside the foundations. Let's get into some nuances now. Three postures for Christians and churches towards politics. Three postures, and then we're going to look at three priorities for voting, and then I'm going to give some pastoral thoughts about our current situation. Three postures for Christians and churches towards politics. One, we are dual citizens with primary allegiance to God's kingdom. Now, I, 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 I love America. I'm very thankful that I, I've, I was born in America. And I consider myself a patriot. I've served in our nation's military, as many of you have, or many of you are here because of that, or your children of people that have served. This is, I think... Th- clearly one of, if not the most blessed nation in the history of human civilization. And so I thank God that I am an American. But a Christian's primary, and it really just absolute primary allegiance should be to God's kingdom. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so our American citizenship, if, if we're Americans, and I think that's probably most of us in this room, is a temporary passing thing. 
It's a blessing from God. It's a stewardship from God. But it should not, it cannot be the loudest or the most dominant thing about a Christian. There are times when every fallen nation, every earthly kingdom will be at odds with the kingdom of God. And in that situation, a Christian needs to have a clear head that their primary allegiance is to God and his kingship and not to America's. Secondly, the church is an ambassador of heaven, not of any political party. The church is an ambassador of heaven, not of any political party. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and following, and verse 17 is a verse that we all love. It's rich with gospel truth. But then notice what he says after this. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, Christians, people in the local church, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so you see these beautiful truths. Verse 17 is talking about the new creature in Christ. Verse 21 is talking about this beautiful exchange that Christ does on the cross. He takes our sin, gives us his righteousness. And in between those two verses is this incredible mission statement for the Christian that says you're Christ's ambassador. That's your primary reason for living. And God has put you in this context, in this setting, in this life, in this time, in this century, in this town, in this country, to be an ambassador of the kingdom that is coming not of this kingdom. Oftentimes when I'm praying with a, a, a military a couple or a person that has been at Crosspoint for a while and they're leaving and they're PCSing, for you civilians that PCSing means permanent change of station, that means they're leaving Fort Benning and going somewhere else. And I'll pray for them, oftentimes right around here after service. And I'll say, Lord, thank you for the United States military, which I love, I'm so thankful for. But thank you that you are using the United States military as your mission's sending organization. They don't know it, but you are, you're sending this person, this Christian, this little ambassador to Fort Campbell or Fort Lewis or Fort Bliss or Fort Bragg or Fort wherever. You're sending them there, paid for by Uncle Sam, their earthly mission as our nation's defense, and praise God for that, but their eternal spiritual mission is being an ambassador for the gospel. And so praise God, your tax dollars are actually in a sense of all the bad things that are happening with our tax dollars, at least part of it is funding missions for Christians that are going all over the world. So put that in your pipe, Uncle Sam, and smoke it. He doesn't even know, but he's even bigger than the IMB, sending missionaries all over the world. Listen to this, though. At various times in our nation's history, one party's platform may be more aligned with biblical truth than the other. Clearly, that's true. However, no political party's platform is perfect. And when we demonstrate more passion for 
or allegiance to a platform and therefore cannot critique the wrong things about it, we are compromising the truth and prone to cloud our witness to the world. And this is a great danger. I think many Christians in our context are prone to, for the sake of political power and expediency, are prone to not stand up for righteousness in some areas because it will hurt the advancement of their platform. So they sort of swallow the rotten apple so that they can advance the bushel of good apples. And, and there may be some pragmatism on some level on, in, in, that, in that sort of operation. I realize that people cannot get into political power in the halls of power in our nation in Washington, D.C. without dancing a little bit and getting your feet dirty. I get that. But I'm talking about the average Christian in the local church. I, I, I'm concerned that sometimes we have blinders on and we, we, we act like one particular party or another has a kind of corner on righteousness, and that's just simply an untenable position, I think, biblically. No political platform is perfect, even though at various times in the history of the church we may side with one or the other. An example of this, I think, historically, and I say this with all sorts of, you know, I mean, I, I, I preached on some hard truths here, and so I, I you know, predestination, women and men and their gender, homosexuality, this may get more of you going than anything. I'm going to bring up a, 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 a saint in many of our eyes, Billy Graham. Okay, I love the ministry of Billy Graham. But I think Billy Graham ran into some trouble in the 70s and 80s, the 70s in particular, with his association with President Nixon. He got a little close to President Nixon. And the reason I think he got close to President Nixon was because Nixon was very strong against the advance of communism. And that's a great thing. Communism was and is an evil in our world. It's a godless ideology that needs to be combated. And I think the church, led by people like Graham and Carl Henry and others, saw a kind of an allegiance with Nixon at that time and the Republican Party led by Nixon at that time. And there was a kind of shared resistance to communism, which was a good thing. But it kind of got mixed. And some of Nixon's real character flaws, which ended up getting him impeached, or he actually resigned, uh, really kind of muddied the waters and sullied the witness of, of the church at that time on some levels, I think. We could talk more about that further, but um, I think that's an example of how Christians need to not be too aligned with any particular political movement. Posture number three. Don't put your hope in government, but don't give up on it either. And I, and I, I speak, I think this, this, this truth kind of goes to two generations. I see a generational tension in the church. And I say the church at large, but I also kind of see it here in our church. And I'm speaking in stereotypes here and I'm painting with broad brushes, but I do think there's some truth to this. I think people my age and older are more prone to a kind of blind nationalism and unhealthy patriotism 
Christians anyway, whereas people that are younger are more prone to a kind of blind, unhelpful cynicism towards government. So I think people my age and older tend to think of America as kind of like a new Jerusalem, where people younger tend to think of America as like a new Babylon. And I think there's errors on both sides there. I think that we need to be, we need to not put our hope in government in one sense, but we need to also not be cynical about it either. We need to not give up on government. Government is, 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 is God's ordained means, but it's not, it's not ultimate. It's what God uses to advance his, his kingdom. Okay, so that's three postures for a Christian towards politics. Let's wheedle it down even, even deeper. Three priorities for voting. I'm not going to tell you who you should vote for, but I'm going to give you what I consider are my priorities for voting. Three issues to help me think through voting. The first priority, I think, for the Christian should be to prioritize issues surrounding the image of God in humanity. Issues surrounding the image of God in humanity. There are three big ones, three big issues that fall underneath this rubric for me, and those issues are the protection of life, the unborn, issues, the theological, I mean, the, 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 obviously the political topic of abortion and pro-life versus abortion. So that'd be one. The second issue surrounding the image of God in humanity for me would be issues surrounding gender and what our government says about, about gender, and then thirdly, sexuality. So I'm going to put a very a, a, a first-order premium on candidates and what their stances are on life, on gender, and on sexuality. And those three things are very important to me as a biblical Christian. Now, other important issues that I think are in this category of the image of God in humanity might be things like race relations. Uh, I am not obviously an ethnic minority, at least in the United States, and so I recognize that I may not be as sensitive to race relations issues as my brothers and sisters who are in a minority ethnic group, and I want to be aware of that. The other thing would be caring for the poor. That's another sort of image of God in humanity, thinking about the least of these. And so I want to hold out room that my big three would be protecting the unborn, issues surrounding gender, um, and when I'm talking about gender, I'm not talking about um, necessarily equality for men and women, although that's for, very important. I'm talking about the ridiculousness of our country and our government doing things like, like, like ruling for parents that want to assign their, wait for their child to assign his, own, his or her own gender, which is absolute ludicrousry. It's ludicrous. Or like in North Carolina, where, 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 where uh, the NCAA was going to boycott North Carolina because North Carolina had the audacity to have bathrooms for males and females. And so th this kind of insanity are things that, that what I'm talking about in gender. But I want to hold out that some Christians may, may not have the, that list, and they may be very passionate about race relations and caring for the poor. And here's what I want to say about prioritizing issues surrounding the image of God and humanity. Christians may disagree with the ranking of the importance of these issues, and we must be able to 
empathize with one another. We must, and when I say empathize, that means we don't have to agree with one another, but we need to at least understand one another's position and be able to at least understand how that person has arrived at that place without sort of shunning them or, 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 or completely neutralizing them and not listening to their opinion. So let me, let me just kind of put a fine point on it. I think that protection of unborn is a first-level issue. And I think all Christians, regardless of where they are on the theological spectrum, I think that should clearly be an issue from them, for them. I understand. I do not agree with, but I understand where a Christian that maybe has come from an ethnic group that has been marginalized, might think that, hey, it's acceptable for me to vote for a politician that may not be where most Christians are on protecting the life of the unborn, but they may think, and and I do not agree with this, but they may think that, you know, abortion is a bad thing, but so many more people are, 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 are poor and dying in poverty, and so they may prioritize in their mind that they're going to think along those lines. I want to say, again, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. But I also want to understand that there may be brothers and sisters whose experiences may be different from mine, whose life experience and situation and context is different, that is going to bring them to that position. And I want to be able to sit down and talk with that person and hear them out and hopefully persuade them to what I think is right. But I am not, I am not going to be more aligned with a fallen political party than I am with a very wrong brother or sister on a political issue. Does that make sense? I think that's a huge issue in the church. Second priority for me in in voting would be to prioritize the preservation of religious liberty. Uh, Things like the government not being able to, you know, impose regulations or really uh, 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 muzzling the, the church. And so that's obviously a priority. Second, a third priority would be prior, prioritize policies that promote human flourishing. And in this, I'm thinking about things like immigration policy, caring for the poor, realizing that Christians may have differing priorities on this. And Christians may come at these issues with very different understandings. But I want to think about So first is going to be issues surrounding humanity and the image of God. Second is going to be preservation of religious liberty. And then third, I want to think about policies. And I want to vote for politicians that promote policies that, at least from my perspective, seem to promote human flourishing, promote the well-being of all people. But let's take something like immigration. That is a nuanced issue. And as Christians, we need to have the understanding that Bible-believing Christians can have different perspectives on something like immigration policy. On the one hand, clearly it's very important to protect our nation's borders. But on the other hand, 
Also, we want to be good humanitarians that care for the poor. What's the balance between those two things that the Bible calls us to do? That's difficult. We don't know how to do, we don't all know how to do that perfectly. Another thing might be caring for the poor. What's the best way to care for the poor? One Christian may conclude that the best way to care for the poor is to limit government's involvement and to free free enterprise up to tax people less and hire people more and things will kind of take care of themselves and that will end up causing more people to, to flourish economically. Whereas another Christian may think, well, no, it's more of the government's role to help people out with subsidies and government programs. Now, I tend to think that the, 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 the first thing that I mentioned is a better way to go, but I, I don't want to cut off fellowship with a brother or sister that may have a different perspective. And that's, that is where I need to hold myself in a way that even when I disagree with my brother or sister passionately on these things, they need to know that I am more committed to them and our bond in Christ than I am to my political position. Because there's coming a day when immigration policy and government subsidies and all these things will go away, but if we are in Christ, we will be together forever in the kingdom of God. And I need to be very cognizant of the things that I post on social media or the things that I say and how they might be threatening or wrongly interpreted by my brothers and sisters who might disagree with me. So those are three priorities for voting. Okay. I'm going to do this, and it's because I love you, and I think you love me, and I recognize that you may disagree with some of the things I'm about to say, but... I'm just kind of tired of not being able to share my opinion with the people that I have spiritual responsibility for. So here are some thoughts regarding President Trump and his presidency and the lightning bolt, the, um, the divisive aspect of at least this time in our nation's history, which I think sort of the lightning rod for that is, is his presidency. I understand and empathize with how a Christian may conclude that, Christian, that, that Donald Trump is the best candidate. And I think all Christians should, should on some level be able to understand and conclude that. I understand how a Christian, and I empathize with a Christian, who may conclude that his policies are better than other candidates. And I understand how a Christian may vote for President Trump. I may or may not vote for President Trump. I understand how a Christian may be frustrated with mainstream media that seems to be hypercritical of him, and I understand and am actually empathetic and sympathetic toward the perspective that there seems to be a preponderance of the mass media that is against conservative, at least people in the conservative sphere. I, I am certainly empathetic and sympathetic to that. I also understand how a Christian can be disgusted with President Trump's rhetoric and behavior and therefore decide not to vote for him for a variety of reasons. And I also think that fellow believers should respect that position even if they disagree with it. However, it concerns me pastorally when believers are not able to recognize faults in President Trump's demeanor and behavior 
or seem to be unable to understand how a fellow Christian might be offended or threatened by President Trump and some of his public speech and rhetoric. We must be able to empathize with our brothers and sisters, even if we disagree with them. Let's admit that many Christians, or at least I'm going to admit, I'm not going to speak for you, that many Christians seem to passionately defend President Trump and overlook his obvious character flaws that they were very eager to point out in other presidents that they didn't agree with, specifically President Clinton, who I am certainly no apologist for. To an on, listen to me, dear friend. I am not being pro or anti-Trump. I'm just, I'm just wanting us to think about biblical posture. To an onlooking, unbelieving world, that posture of overlooking and even defending some of President Trump's speech and behavior, where we, 15 or 20 years ago, deeply criticized, and I'm not saying that's anybody here, but I think there's, there's some strain of that in the church. At a minimum, that is confusing to an onlooking world. At worst, it's hypocritical. And we overlook the fact, we overlook the fact, some, well, I'm not going to put, I think some people in the church overlook the fact that although he does speak with Christian rhetoric and has done some things that I think have been very, very good for the church and for, for religious liberty, I want to say that very, very good, that I am very thankful for, very thankful for. And I think clearly God is using him, but I think clearly God uses every leader because I think Romans 13 is true. So I thank God for what President Trump has done on a lot of different levels policy-wise. But I also want to say that I'm wary of his friendliness with certain Christian leaders who I think are just heretics. And we were very critical, many in the Christian church, of President Obama's association with some of his spiritual influences. And we just overlook some of the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, false gospel preaching people that Trump has surrounded himself with. I think if we're not willing to say that's not helpful or that's not a good influence, we, I think we potentially discourage brothers and sisters that might, might come from a different context than we do. When we do that, I think we're in danger. I think, I think this is the crux of it. When we do that, I think we're in danger of sending the signal that our real motive, our real passion, is political power and not the kingdom of God advancing. What really gets us going is winning an election, not righteousness reigning in every corner of our society for the flourishing of humanity. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. Conversely, let me, let, me, let me poke at the other side now. It concerns me pastorally when believers are so unnerved, certain believers, some believers are so unnerved by Trump and so upset by him that they are prone to unwittingly communicate that their hope also is in politics. And I'm, I'm concerned about some brothers and sisters that would overlook their, can, their candidate of choice Maybe the flaws in the previous president, who they trumpeted as a, a wonderful leader, 
even though many of his policies were ungodly, ungodly, and absolutely against the righteousness of the Bible. So I'm very concerned about that as well. My point is, is that I think the biblical posture is to have a kind of otherworldliness. It is so hard. I just feel myself, I can remember being at West Point in 1989, my freshman year, and political talk radio was like taking off. And back in my day at West Point, we didn't have like smartphones and all these cute little things that you guys have. What, I don't know if they come in and give you massages and rub your feet. But back in my day, we, we, didn't, we didn't have anything. You'd have like one tiny little transistor radio and you could listen to, to conservative talk radio. And I can remember my, just getting excited. And I can remember when, when presidential, presidential elections would happen and I can remember the excitement and the anger that I would have about certain political positions. And I, I think some of that is rooted in a desire for the flourishing of the nation, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But I also think that some of it in me was rooted, was rooted in my desire for political power. It was, it was the desire that's in James and John when they come to Jesus and they say, who's going to sit at your right hand in the kingdom, me or this bozo? And Jesus says, man, you don't even know what you're asking for. We all have this desire for greatness. And I, I, want, I, I want to confess that I think um, I'm prone to want a kind of political greatness uh, a kind of thing, a, a, a temporary kingdom greatness that is not necessarily the kingdom of God's agenda. Some concluding passages, and then I'll stop and we'll have questions, comments. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29 through 31, he's speaking about marriage and lots of things, and then he just kind of steps back and he says, okay, this is what life is all about. Verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He's not saying, don't act like your wife doesn't exist. Don't go to work. Don't not go to work. He's saying, deal with this world. But have this kind of dual citizenship and realize that these 80 years, this kingdom is going to come and go, but we're living for the kingdom that is coming. Hebrews 11, verse 9, speaking of Abraham, it says, By faith he went to live in, a land, in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, speaking of Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that city is not an earthly city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's heaven. And that's where we're going. And while we live in this city, we are to seek, God tells the 
the captives of Israel and they're in Babylonian captivity, he says, seek to do good to the city because as that city goes, you go. So do good to this city, but keep your eyes on the city to come. All right, questions, comments? Or you can save the emails for later. My email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. Yes, Mitch. Hey, thanks, Brad. And I really yeah. appreciate giving some context with um, some, some political priorities to look yeah. at and policies. Yeah. But where, if at all, does a candidate's character um, fall into that? Is it only in as much as their character is predictable towards yeah. those policies or beyond that? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think, for example, Jimmy Carter was a man of great character, but he was a man that I would have politically disagreed with on many, many different levels. Um, I think there's going to be, I think that's a disputable matter. I think that's a Romans 15 matter. I think that it's, 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 it's a, it's a, there's a utility curve that you almost have to deal with kind of issue to issue and person to person. And I clearly think character matters, but I also think that God uses pagan, unbelieving, rotten people to work his sovereign plan. We see that in Cyrus. He raises up King Cyrus, this pagan government, to actually be the Persian emperor who defeats the Babylons, Babylonians so that he then takes God's people captive and is, is more generous to them so that Nehemiah and Ezra can go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So um, I think we're just going to have to take each person and each issue kind of as it goes, and we need to give space for Christians to disagree on where character and policy and the, the, the breaking point is where it, it may be different for every Christian. That's where we just need to have generosity. And if we get too passionate about where we think that line intersects over and against our brother and sister, that's where I think we're running into problems. And when I say passion, I'm not saying don't have passion, but when we, when, we, when, we, when we break fellowship with brothers and sisters, that's what starts to alarm me a little bit. Yeah. Good question. Sam. Do you think Christians have a moral obligation to vote? And what would you say to a Christian who's basically just like, I'm going to be apathetic about this. I'm not going to vote. I don't really have much of a say, or they don't want to do anything. Yeah, I do think Christians should vote. I think it's a stewardship. Um, I, think, um, I think if you don't vote, I think you're squandering a, a stewardship that our brothers and sisters in parts of the world that don't have a right to would look at us and say, how, how lazy are you, you know? And so, yeah, I'm not going to add it as a command to salvation, obviously. Um, but if you don't vote, um, I, I, I would be pretty frustrated with you. I'm not talking about you. Well, if, you know, I just, I just, I think, I think you should vote. Absolutely. I, I think it's a stewardship. Yeah. Can't see who that is back there. Hi, I'm Becky. And um, Becky, are you a political scientist? Somebody told me you were a political I scientist. I am, yes. <laughs> do you have a PhD in political science? I do, yes. You should have given this. I don't know, what am I talking <laughs> about? <laughs> Tell us, instruct us, instruct us, Becky. You did. You said a lot of great things. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Last year, John MacArthur did an interview with Ben Shapiro in which he stated that he didn't think it was appropriate for Christians to participate in and help perpetuate political revolutions. What do you think about that? Mm. Um, yeah, I actually um, remember listening to a talk years ago about the moral correctness of the American Revolution. Um, Becky, I don't know. I, I would, I would, I, I would. Far be it from me to disagree with John MacArthur, who I hold in very high esteem. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's going to be another utility curve, and I think there's going to be, you know, I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who had, if you're not familiar with him, he had a cushy job here in the United States as a seminary professor. And at Union Seminary up in New York, I think it was, in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, German. As the Third Reich is starting to rise in Germany, Bonhoeffer made the decision to go back to Germany to bolster and minister to Christians there in Germany in the teeth of the Third Reich and to you know, help the confessing underground church and actually got involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler and was thrown in prison and spent several years in prison at the end of World War II. And then three weeks before Hitler died in the bunker there in 1945, Bonhoeffer was hung and killed by the Third Reich. Um, I, I think that what Bonhoeffer was doing had, had, had mandate to it, and I don't fault him for it. I think it was courageous and brave. Um, and I'm very thankful that some... Puritans, American Puritans, um, revolted against uh, England. And whether it was right or wrong, you know, that's one of the benefits of being an utter, you know, Calvinist in the sense that I lean totally on the sovereignty of God, and God has clearly worked it out for the good of humanity. So, I don't know if that answered your question, Becky. I don't know. I think that's kind of above my pay grade. So, I'm going to leave. I'm going to... I, John MacArthur and, and, and you, I think, would, could instruct me better on that, really. And I'm not, honestly, I think you would know better. What would you think to that, Becky? I think it absolutely is biblical for yeah. Christians to participate in political revolutions, especially when the outcome is going to be a society and a country in which we can worship freely. Yeah, yeah. I should have just let you say that. <laughs> we would have saved three minutes. Thank you, Becky. Get to know Scott and Becky Lawler. They are from, I don't know where you guys are from, maybe mid-Atlantic, but they originally came, they most recently came here from Yuma, Arizona, which is an hour away from a little place I like to call El Central California. Yeah. And so um, they're just a wonderful couple. Get to know them. Uh, anybody else? Yes, Kristen. Um, so... I'm curious what you think about when people say, you know, yes, you're free to vote for whoever, like, you know, think through it and vote your conscience. Yeah. But what about the lesser of two evils argument? Like you real people say you need to vote for one of the two parties because nothing else counts. But if your conscience says don't, neither one of these are a good candidate, but you do want to do be a good steward and vote, you mm -hmm. know, what do you say to that issue? I know what I think, but I'm just really curious what you think. Yeah. I am not persuaded. I don't want to be backed into a corner. Um, I'm not persuaded by that. I think my, my conscience is bound 
to the Word of God, and, um, and I want to leave space for a Christian who says, who might say in 2016 that I don't think, I, I don't think, I think for a lot of reasons I can't vote for Hillary Clinton, and for these reasons I don't think I can, my conscience can allow me to vote for President Trump. And I, I don't think we have any right to touch that. I think we can reason with a friend who might think that, and we may even disagree with it. But I, I think that clearly there has to be room for that for a Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on the other side of that, I am not discouraged by a Christian who says I understand that, but I just think pragmatically it makes more sense to vote for this candidate who I think, although undesirable, is better than that one. I think that's a legitimate position as well. Absolutely that's a legitimate position. And I also want to say that that doesn't mean that that person who voted for candidate A necessarily endorses or likes all that that candidate does. Clearly there's got to be room for that. And the polarization that has taken place in the church because of that very issue that you bring up, Christian, I think is bringing to surface how immature we are on this issue. So, great question, Kristen. Great question. Any other, any other questions, comments? John, is that you, John? Yeah. Uh, good evening, Pastor Brad. Hey, brother. Um, so, uh, Bernie Sanders... Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a senator from Vermont. I'm, fam- uh, I'm familiar with him. I'm familiar, yes. So uh, he won the New Hampshire Democratic primary today. Yep. So in light of his victory, uh, do you think there is a biblical case for socialism? No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, not as it exists in America today. Um. I don't draw a direct line from Acts 2 to American socialism. I, I, I do not. Um, I think that's immature and short-sighted. I think what the underpinnings of socialism and communism is a godless ideology. And um, I think it's dangerous. Um, that's my personal opinion, and other Christians may, may disagree with me. But I... I I, I don't. I, I don't think socialism is compatible with a biblical worldview. Yeah. Let's get a microphone. Well, yeah, but we still want to, we're recording these things and people want to hear it. So there's a, um, a news site called Discern, D-I-S, uh-huh. I think R-N. It was started by the, the creators of Babylon B. Uh-huh. And um, they actually addressed kind of the issue of Marxism, and socialism comes out of Marxism. Yeah, yeah. And there, it yeah. was an opinion piece, a lot of them are simple, factual, highly yeah. recommend it, because they yeah. come from a reformed tradition and very yeah. sound. But um, yeah. they talked about the, the roots of socialism and Marxism are, you know, there's no God. There, it's, yeah. it's evolutionary in process, and for socialism to work, for communism, which I realize one is political, one's economic, yeah. but for those systems to work, you have to have a God-free society that believes in evolution, which is at odds in itself yeah. of, yeah. you know, the scripture. Yeah. So. I can remember about a year ago, Pastor Miguel from Cuba came 
Uh, if you remember when Luis, I remember Luis from Cuba, translator for Pastor Miguel. He came here on a Sunday. He's a pastor that has lived and ministered in Cuba for, you know, 50 years. And he was over at our house for lunch. And I remember him saying, this is a guy that's grown up and lived all of his adult life under Castro. And he was, he was asking me about, about the millennial Americans' fascination with socialism. And he's like, what? what's going on here in America? How can you, he says, tell some of those kids to come and live with me for a while in, in where I've lived. And, and I remember just being kind of chastened by that. Um, uh, I, 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 I think that, yeah, that's all I'll say to that. Yeah. Any, anything else? Caleb. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a proponent of some, you know, like everything that maybe a, 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 a capitalism has its ills too. You know, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, so don't, I'm just saying, yeah, that's all I need to say on that, Caleb. My question is different. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what would you say to uh, brothers and sisters in North Korea, for example, who live on arguably the most oppressive regime in our yeah. world today? Um, how they should conduct themselves, because Jesus was clear, and it seems Paul was too, that in an oppressive society to their faith, that they were to obey the government, not necessarily conduct this political revolution. So yes, I'm readdressing the political revolution yeah. question again. But. Yeah, that's a great question. I want to mix it with what Becky said. I think what Becky said is true. Um, I think that um, what those Christians should do on a societal level is probably um, for people who are, 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 are more instructed and educated in that, and I'm not being facetious, but for people like Becky, Christians who have thought deeply in the public sphere and who have thought on those levels way more. I'm, a, I'm just an ordinary pastor of a local church, and what would I say to those Christians? I don't think I'm qualified to answer those level societal questions, but I do think what I would say to them is what Hebrews 10 says, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And that's all I really feel qualified to say to brothers and sisters in that situation. And that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Is that Sarah Ann? Is that you? Okay. Right behind you. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of have a question about just the way politics are conducted right now as far as the name calling mm. and just yeah. the kind of provocative yep. and the yep. kind of the nice guy never wins kind of. Like, what do you say to Christians who are in that sphere? I and know. I mean, I've even heard polls about Christians basically saying that it's okay to do the name calling and stuff as long as you're behind the political party that's quote unquote right. Yeah. And I just, it, it troubles me and I just kind of wonder what you thought about it. Yeah. I just think it's a difficult argument biblically to say it's okay to sin for some 
some advancement in some other area. I just, again, I'm a pastor of a local church. I just, I just don't buy into that argument. It just says that the means of grace of God's people are not, the means of grace that God has given his people is not sufficient. Um, Polycarp, one of the first Christian martyrs in A.D. 155, spoke to the government, said, stop preaching about this Christ. And Polycarp said, I, I, I must preach Christ. And they said, if you creep, keep preaching Christ, we're going to burn you at the stake. And he said to his Roman captors, well, that flame is temporary and it's going to go out. But the flames of hell that you're facing and that I will face if I deny Christ will go on forever, so burn me. And they burned Polycarp. And I think political expediency is not worth compromising obedience to God, even in the way we conduct ourselves. I think it stunts the prophetic witness of the church. And I think, I, I think it's, yeah, I, but, but I understand it's hard for politicians. So, yeah. Any other questions? I hope I, hope I answered that, Sarah Ann. Read about Polycarp. Google Polycarp. Hopefully Wikipedia is right on what it says about him. Anybody else got anything? All right. Well, let's pray. I know it's late and kids got school tomorrow and the chicken was late. Yeah. Yeah, please, Mitch. Yeah. Sorry, I know I'm taking one of my share mic time. I just wanted to to add what you said about um, the United States government unwittingly sending yeah. missionaries all over the world. Just so everyone in here knows, they also unwittingly <laughs> bring, bring the here. world to yes. Fort Benning, Columbus, yes. Georgia. And everybody who comes here under my command speaks English. Yes. They're from 108 countries around the world. And if you want to, if you want yes. to befriend a foreign officer who is very likely very who, influential. Who is here in the United States because they're one of the most influential people in their army. Talk to Mitch. Yep. Have that person over for dinner. Bring him to Crosspoint. Yep. Ron and Mary Mullins uh, it's, it's have brought... It's not a huge commitment thing. Yeah. You're just like, hey, you want to come to church with me on Sunday? And That's like, right. Yeah, sure. I don't want to hang out in the hotel anymore. Over the past 10 years, Ron and Mary Mullins, who are members of Crosspoint, have brought officers from all over the world to Crosspoint and to UGA football games. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all the important things. <laughs> Let me end with this. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So let's end by doing that. Let's pray for our political leaders. Lord, we pray for our local leaders, for our mayor, for our governor, for the local, uh, for, the, for the state uh, congress. We pray for our national leaders, for our congressmen, for our senators. We pray for President Trump. We know that he's been instituted by you. We thank you for the many ways that he has blessed uh, religious liberty and has blessed interests of Christians. We do pray that you'd give him wisdom. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us, us wisdom and discernment as to how we are to posture ourselves towards the political process. As we approach a political year, we know we, we approach November without fear because we know that nothing is outside of your control. You have ordained our days, every one of them before one of them came to be, Psalm 139 says. So we rest in your utter and good sovereignty for your people, no matter what the Tuesday in November says. We know that if you give us a president that will be favorable to the church, that's your gracious plan. We know that if we have difficult days of ahead of maybe even increasing persecution, we know that it's for our good and your glory. So we rest, Lord, we rest in your kindness towards us. And yet, Lord, we know that the means by which you bring about your sovereign plan is the obedience of your people to care deeply for the cities and the countries that they live in. So make us the best of citizens, but make our hope not be in this kingdom, but in the one that's coming. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.